Hello and welcome to the Future Tribe podcast. Each week we'll be talking about getting things done. We'll talk to people who've built up their businesses, pulled off amazing projects and cover everything from psychology and strategy to the tips and tricks that will help make your dream a reality. We're the podcast that's all about empowering the optimists and the go-getters. I'm your host, Jermaine Muller. You're listening to the Future Tribe podcast and this episode is just getting started. Hello, Future Tribe. Welcome to another episode of Last Week on Tuesday. How are you today, Hayden? I'm very good, Jermaine. How are you? Good, thank you. Let's get the ball rolling with uh, notable news for this week. Okay, so this week, Facebook, uh, they put new features in their ad program. Google Chrome is now going to label slow websites. Microsoft finally kills off its Cortana app. Huawei uh, foldable phone is now on sale, but not in Australia yet. Basecamp now has a free tier. Motorola announces their own foldable called the Razor. Apple replaces the 15-inch MacBook Pro with the 16-inch model. Google gets caught secretly gathering health data, and Disney Plus comes to Australia on the 19th of November, but is suffering some technical errors in its launches other places. So yeah, a lot of so news as always. As always, we get uh, a few of the, the big names. Actually, this week's uh, got everyone. Facebook, Google, Microsoft, yeah. Apple. Uh, it oh. works. But let's get the ball rolling with Facebook. So Facebook's just released um, several ad personalization capabilities. Uh, so let me just share the screen for those on watching the video. There we go. So... This is big news because they've started using machine learning um, to sort of essentially automate or uh, use um, artificial intelligence to decide uh, what the ads look like and how that how they will be served. Um, so there's stuff like text optimization, translating languages for single media ads, are uh, basically mm-hmm. letting letting advertisers now generate highly customized ads. Uh, for international audiences, for um, even local audiences, by using machine learning, um, so it's a, it's it's not surprising that they've got to this stage because machine learning is a big big buzzword. Um, I think, in my opinion, um, in a world where everything's very human, everything's very uh, when it comes to advertising, especially, it's interesting that they've taken sort of a AI sort of route. But I guess yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, but for, for advertisers who don't have the time or the expertise or the knowledge to customize their ads, this is a good thing. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a great point. From a low-end perspective, if you were, you know, a smaller firm, it's good for you because you have to dedicate less uh, man hours to localizing your ads, making sure they're optimized for each platform and, you know, each permutation they use. But as you were alluding to before, I mean a lot of stuff can get lost in translation, especially when you are advertising or creating advertising, advertising material that will um, target different international markets and stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. even in the way that movies and TV shows and other things are localized, a lot of care has to be put into how they are translated because you can't just put a phrase into Google translate, change it to Japanese and expect it to mean the exact same thing. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether the machine learning is smart enough to account for that. But 
It, yeah, I, I mean, mean, theoretically it should be, but I think what would be more interesting to see is uh, I don't know if Facebook will release this data or if, if maybe advertisers will uh, try this and give it a go and come back to, you know, the, the internet with their findings. But it'll, I think it'll be really interesting to see if we see an uptick in conversion rates um, or a downtick, whether, whether, you know, it is that good. Um, Cause mm. I guess the argument for it will be that, well, it's machine learning, you know, it can process so much data in one go that um, theoretically uh, humans can't process um you know, that volume of data. So maybe they'll use data um, to really change how um, how the ads, ads are served and then how well the ads do. Yeah. Do you think this will mean going forward that there'll be less um, maybe entry-level jobs for people who are trying to make it in the advertising industry who, you know, this grunt work of translating ads, making sure they're optimised in terms of format. Do you reckon that low-end you know, job opportunities will fall out or whether I don't it's sort think of unaffected so. by this. I, I think this is so low end that, you know, if someone's going to spend um, a, a, a decent budget, so, you know, um, someone who's got a business with two to three staff and really looking at Facebook as a solution, um, I think they, they would invest properly. So it wouldn't take away, you're not really replacing, you know, an agency or a firm with with this uh, solution. Um, this is more for the maybe the person who is running their business themselves, who also does the marketing. Exactly, you know, realizes that yeah, on top of everything yeah. else, um, sure. and realizes that personalizing ads is really handy, and have found that you know when they personalize their ads, they get an uptick in sales or uptick in conversion rates, um, but doesn't necessarily have the time to spend every single ad. Well, the interesting thing about that, just, you know, before we quickly hop off the topic, I mean, there's been a lot of data and a lot of research to suggest that personalizing your advertising material, making it seem more human, if you will, is a great way to get people to not only pay attention to it, but to actually action your ad, Completely. you know, whether that be clicking. So it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, the advent of AI sort of gets us moving in the other direction. Yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I think it'll be very interesting to see as well. I think, you know, theoretically AI should be should be able to do it actually even more personalized, even smarter than than ever before, because it's crunching all this all this data. And the idea I think is that you'll be able to have more permutations of one ad um, rather yeah. than just because you can get a computer to go, you know, just do it. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see, but. Um, moving on, uh, Google Chrome um, may warn users of slow pages before they before they click through. Um, now, I I have been harping on about the benefits of a good fast internet connection, of course. But then on the flip side, a good fast website and a good fast server setup. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I mean, you know, over the last few years we've seen Google Chrome start showing, you know, not secure warnings where um, there's no HTTPS or where there's no uh, SSL certificate installed on a website. And now we're seeing the possibility that, um, that let me just share the screen, that um, users will be warned 
um, by Google Chrome saying that, you know, this website usually loads slow. Mm. Now, Google, Google's, you know, going on about, well, we think that the web can do better. We want, you know, um, we want to help users and um, we want um, websites that deliver a fast experience to be rewarded. Yeah. But I mean, it's I a weird like, thing for Google to do. I mean, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand what their, where, you know, it's, it's their benefit comes from this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps that, you know, maybe, maybe for them, the faster all websites are maybe, maybe people attribute, website load speeds to Google perhaps. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what I was about to bring up that maybe to a person who really doesn't understand the technical side of, you know, websites and why a website is loading slow that they would sometimes blame the browser. Yeah. As opposed well, to the server the browser, that the website is host on. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you add, you add Google's involvement to this, there's Google Chrome and then there's Google search. And let's be honest, most of us find new websites through Google search. So yeah, for Google, there's two layers at which you can blame the browser. Um, so for them to pass that blame on, essentially, it's fair enough, but it is still a bit bit weird. Um, as you can see here, Google said that it's a proposal still. Um, mm. You know, Google does this all the time. They release sort of proposals or sort of alphas um, where they don't know how it's going to go. They might kill it. They might, they might, um, add it as an option. They might make it a default thing. So we'll see how it goes, but I wanted to bring this up because it sort of puts everyone on notice. So if you have a website that loads slow or, you know, could be quicker, could be faster, there's even more pressure now, um, on you to deliver a good experience. And I don't know about you, Hayden, but I like websites to load very, very quick. Um, and where they don't, (laughs) I like to, uh, not visit them again if I can help it. So, Absolutely. I think, and that's a, you know, to harpen back to your point, it is important that if you have a website that it has to load quickly. I mean, I cannot tell you the amount of small websites I go to, whether it's, you know, if I'm going to a bar, for example, and I want to check out their menu and I go to a website that is totally broken or refuses to load and stuff. It it really makes me apprehensive about whether I even want to go to the restaurant. I'll often still go, obviously. But, but you sort bit, of have that as a first experience. Well, that's probably not so good. Well, that's the thing that they talk about now. It's like the first point of contact for a business isn't when the customer walks through the door. Now it's when they search up your venue or they search up your product or they search up your service and they come to, you know, your digital front door and it loads slowly and it's got the not secure tag from Google Chrome. Mm-hmm. I mean, it definitely doesn't reflect well on your business. It makes it look a bit, a bit like a rinky dink operation. Yeah. Um, I mean, apples to apples, you're probably going to pick the, the bar that had a website that's really nice. And my my pet peeve um, is restaurants that don't have menus on their website or have menus, but don't have prices. Yep. You know, if apples to apples, you're, you're, you're probably likely to pick um, a similarly priced place. If their website (laughs) just provides a better experience overall, because I think you would attribute that to providing perhaps a better experience in, in the venue as well. Absolutely. Because it's not too much of a stretch to think that, Hey, if these guys are putting in an extra couple of thousand dollars to 
you know, their online part of their business and their marketing and stuff like that, they're probably also putting a bit of extra care into the physical part of their business. Everything I else. Mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, they're a bit more serious, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, interesting from Google, just another feature of Chrome. Another reason why I think I'll be a Chrome boy for life. <laughs> yeah. I don't see Chrome losing market share anytime soon, but we'll see how we go. Now talking about market share um, and Google, Google assistant has a massive market share when it comes to voice search. Um, and I guess that's put the pressure on Microsoft to kill off its Cortana app for iOS and Android. So that'll be happening in January in most markets, um, including UK, Australia, Mexico, Germany, China, Canada. So quite quite a, a large number of um, interesting countries where you would think that, you know, those will be the last places that um, a company like Microsoft would want to depart away from. But absolutely. I wanted to feature this uh, just to, you know, for the listeners out there who think about Google Voice um, or Amazon sort of echo search um, and have thought about the other options, this is a big indicator that Google and and Amazon um, are probably going to own this search market. So when when you're thinking about your search engine optimization strategies or how people will find you in the future, you know, don't pay as much attention to Cortana. I don't think I've, I've never used Cortana myself. I'm going to guess that you have never used it either. Hey, never being, have, a, yep. being an Apple user. Yeah. Um, I mean, I forgot about Siri, but let's be honest. No one goes to Siri from their, you know, Chrome browser. You go to Siri exactly. when it's on your yep. iPhone. Um, yep. But I, I, I don't think, I think last, actually recently I heard that Amazon's just overtaken Google um, in terms of that home smart speaker sort of market, which is, mm. I would say, is how most people are accessing these um, voice search services. Um, yep. And it's really just a battle between Amazon Echo and Google Assistant. Yep. Um, I think it's important for the listeners at home to sort of a clarification for them. So they're not totally killing off Cortana, but what they're getting rid of is basically as Jermaine was alluding to making it a direct competitor to Google home or Alexa and stuff like that, where you can use it on your phone as a way to, you know, make shopping purchases or do miscellaneous tasks. Just conduct where, search. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And now they're going to try to more specifically integrate it with their Microsoft 365 suite. So one of the things they're talking about in the article is having it. So you can talk to it while you're in the Microsoft outlook app. And it will read emails back to you and, you know, have a bit of functionality there. So that basically, yeah, admitted that they can't really compete to the other big players in the market. They're not even on Apple's level in terms no. of. And, and Apple's probably a distant third place. Um, yep. in, a, a in very distant one, surely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, I guess this is a fairly, fairly classic pattern we've seen from Microsoft. They often release things um, or they, you know, acquired businesses that are very consumer focused and then slowly realize that actually enterprise and business is where their strengths are. So they just sort yeah. of push it to that, that side. Um, we've seen that happen with even Skype, I would say, um, has yeah. definitely, you know, looked at trending more towards the business side of things and offering sort of business solutions. Um, but again, just, just important to keep an eye on um, when it comes to, having your a website and thinking about how people find you um, is, you know, think about 
um, or realizing that Amazon and Google will treat search results differently and queries differently. So um, important to just keep that um, in mind, given this, this context and, you know, one less thing to think about moving forward, but um, definitely moving forward or speaking about moving forward. Uh, the next thing is Huawei's mate X, which is now on sale in China for 2,400 us dollars so just a few weeks ago we actually saw the galaxy fold which is the samsung uh foldable phone go on sale in australia for three thousand dollars uh which i don't think anyone should pay and i don't see anyone paying um nonetheless it's it's now very clearly we're well into the foldable phone sort of Mm. uh i guess period of time timeline Yeah, yeah yeah Well, the the thing that I wanted to ask you, because I think you are more of a techie than me, especially when it comes to um, outside of the Apple realm, Mm -hmm. do you see this, the foldable market as being a sustainable one? I mean, all pieces of new technology typically come out and they're expensive. So we'll put that aside. Mm -hmm. But do you see foldable technology being something that could be ubiquitously used by people? Does it offer enough benefits benefits for... Because obviously the main benefit of having a foldable phone or the ones that, you know, Samsung and Huawei keep bringing up is that it gives the user a lot of freedom to um, customize their screen size, to have bigger screens, but not sacrifice portability, which I think has been a big problem for pieces of technology like the Samsung Galaxy Note, uh, which is bigger. Yeah. Well, they become cumbersome, right? I mean, mm. like it's all, it's nice having a big screen, but at the end of the day, it still needs to be a portable phone. Um, do you see a future in these devices? Because from what I'm hearing is that there are a lot of, seems to be a lot of issues already with how durable they are. You know, yeah. So that's, that's the big, all. that's the big thing at the moment. And I guess we should roll in Huawei launching the Mate X with Motorola relaunching the Razer. Um, so before we get to that, that, that sort of question you posed, Hayden, um, do you, were you too young when the Motorola Razer was a, was a thing or do you remember? No, it was definitely like, I remember that being like the first phone where it's like, if you had that phone, like you were the man, like if your parents were like cool enough to buy you a phone in like year three or year four, like yes. this was like the Rolls Royce of mobile phones at the time. Definitely. Definitely. Cool looking device. Like, Oh, I mean the first phone that I got was like a, well, it was actually my mom's phone. I just like stole it off. It was a cheap version of the Motorola Razr because back in the day, the Motorola Razr was a solid phone that was, you know, came with a solid price tag. I don't remember how much it was, but, it was, I, I think it was around like $300, $300 I believe. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah. Which is still so, pretty decent considering that I think at that time, most phones were like around the $100 mark. Yeah. I mean, and the thing was like, especially compared to all the competitors at the time, it was super slim. Like the screen quality was like really good. Really and good. this was before like the advent of, you know, keyboard phones, like the web slider where yes. you would be able to like, slide it out and have like a WASD keyboard attached to your phone or like a Blackberry, you know, type configuration. It was really like one of the hallmark mobile phones of the 2000s. I think that's pretty fair to say. Yeah, I I would, I would agree. It was, it was, it was, you know, 
a, a significant model for the time, but now they're relaunching it. Um, and I guess this ties in well with, again, the Maydex, not because just because they're foldable, but they actually take two different approaches to foldable screens. Mm. Um, the Mate X has a large screen that unfolds to an even larger, larger screen. Um, basically, it's two six-inch screens. Um, so you're looking at essentially like a tablet in your hand by the time it's unfolded, where the Motorola yeah. Razr is half the size of a, of a normal phone that then unfolds into the size of a normal phone. Um, yeah. So, and a different price tag as well. So, uh, the Motorola Razr is coming out at fifteen hundred uh, US dollars, so about a thousand dollars cheaper than the Mate X, um, and I think about five hundred dollars cheaper than the Samsung Galaxy Fold. Um, and take a different approach. So, a big problem has been the fact that they're quite fragile because naturally glass doesn't doesn't bend, not without breaking. Um, so, all these foldable screens tend to be plastic and as we all know plastic's nowhere near as strong as glass so that's been that's been sort of the problem so far they're fairly fragile um what has been done though so huawei's mate x takes an approach of a plastic screen that is actually on the outside when it's folded um or two so it's the back and the front so that's a bit scary galaxy fold takes the approach of a foldable screen on the inside with a smaller screen on the outside. So now you're looking at essentially three different screens and the Motorola Razr is taking the approach of one, one, well, two screens on the inside when you flip up the phone and then one smaller screen on the outside. Um, the interesting thing about Motorola's approach is, so the Huawei and the Galaxy Fold both create creases, whether it's a crease that protrudes from the screen or a crease that shows, shows a fold within the screen because the screens are quite, you know, folded where Motorola's mm. essentially used a very intricate system of um, sliders and hinges to hide the, the curve. Um, but also, well, meaning that when you fold the screen, the, the screen, the plastic screen itself actually doesn't fold flat. So you don't end up with a crease. You end up with, um, let me see if I can find and, a description or an animation of it. Yeah, it I highly basically... recommend. Yeah, if you yeah for the audio listeners at home, definitely have a look at like the way these models look because the Razer is it, it's a pretty cool design. Again, it's pretty expensive for the smartphone, but it's well, made with, to look. Sorry, just talking about the expensive fact. It's it's got the the internals from uh last year so we're looking at a very expensive phone for the price but so you were saying oh i was just saying that like if you want to visualize it in your head this is very reminiscent of the old motorola razor in the fact that it looks like a flip phone but when it flips out obviously it goes from you know looking like a normal flip phone to just a smartphone and it's i mean like from the videos i've looked at it looks like it does it pretty ubiquitously like it, it does it pretty Oh, it's smooth. It gets, it's nice. It's, yeah, it's smooth. It looks yeah. like it looks like a finished device. It doesn't look like a prototype, which I think the Galaxy Fold and the Huawei Mate X look like. But maybe yeah. that's because the Razer unfolds into a size and a form factor that we're pretty much used to. Um, yeah. Where the other two, you know, they're becoming much bigger devices. Like we're not used to 
yes, we're used to tablets, but we're not used to tablets that fold in half. Um, yeah. Which is the big thing. And of course the phone runs Android. So, you know, endless customizations. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. I think I wouldn't recommend buying any of this for anyone, no matter you know, how generous you're feeling this Christmas, uh, don't buy it for yourself. Um, unless yeah. you, you like sort of, you know, being at the bleeding edge of technology. And, um, I would probably say if you enjoy I mean, spending money on and losing, yeah. you know, having no resale value and yeah. having no real, yeah, there's going to be a lot of refining to do. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the thing that I think we'll leave it on is, I think it's all right spending a lot of money on technology, but you have to sort of understand that if you buy it on, if you spend it on experimental technology, there's a good chance it will never be supported properly until it becomes more popular within the market. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what it is. I mean, like using virtual reality is, you know, an analogy for it. I mean, you can have the best virtual reality unit. It's so, you know, the most high tech stuff, it's cutting edge, blah, blah, blah. But, if the install base isn't there for developers to make software or, you know, products for it, there's going to be real, no reason to use it, even though it's great technology, there's no real reason to use it because there's no one making stuff specially designed for it. For it. No yeah. Just, because there's yeah. no interest. There's no, there's no reason that they would spend more time on something that's going to be used less, but exactly. moving on um, Basecamp. So Basecamp's a project management tool has just announced a new free tier called Basecamp personal. Um, again, I wanted to bring this up because if you're listening to this podcast, if you're part of the future tribe, I think it's in your interest to look into really good tools, really good software. And if it's free, um, well, that's, that's even better. Um, yeah. Basecamp's just, just a project management tool. Um, you don't even need a credit card. So it's not one of those, you know, add your credit card details, um, we'll, we'll just bump you up to a paid tier as soon as you cross that barrier. It's genuinely just a free, free sort of offering. Um, decent, you know, fairly, fairly generous. Um, having a look at it, um, it supports up to three projects um, with up to 20 users and up to yep. one gigabyte of data. That's, that's good. That's pretty meaty for a free version. I mean, you, you're not even going to get that with, software like or not a software but you know products like asana or trello no i don't seem to be as robust as those i don't i don't believe so and Basecamp has been around for a long long time and it's it's pretty nice software so i'll be checking it out um i don't know that we'd swap to it um but i'd be checking it out for sure uh, did you have anything else to add on the Basecamp front well i just think it's very smart on that like one of the smartest moves i think that they're making right now is that obviously they're positioned as something that freelancers and small businesses should use, but their lowest end model or their lowest end, you know, product before this was $99 a month to get you, you know, their lowest tier version. And it, it seemed a bit odd to me that you would in the same way you're targeting, you know, people who aren't making a lot of money who are, you know, probably trying to get their start off off the ground, but you're also expecting them to pay $99 for a project. And that's not nine US dollars. So in Australia, um, probably it would, like 130. Yeah. 130 to 150. Um, and that's yeah. just a bit too much. I mean, like, because you're adding on top of that, the fact that you have to pay that, you know, in perpetuity every month for every year that you use it, 
probably on top of your other utilities, your rent, you know, your wages that you pay people, the people who, you know, work for you and your freelancers. So not cheap at all, but then to swap to a completely free model that's so robust, maybe they just have enough money from years and years of charging people a hundred bucks as a, as a base rate Mm. and now spend now, now give it to you for free. Perhaps. (laughs) But moving on, um, Something that you're probably excited about, I don't know. I think you're the resident Apple Apple fan. Um, I mm. won't call you a fanboy. Um, I think that that that's a bit derogatory. Um, but um, Apple's released uh, the MacBook Pro 16-inch. What are your thoughts on this? Again, I think that it's more of the same for Apple. I mean, this is not this is not anything you know, that was unexpected. I mean, we've been hearing rumors of this since like, you know, about a year ago, Mm. I think is when I started hearing rumblings of this. Um, So basically the main difference besides all the the processing power upgrades and just, you know, the general updates that you can expect with a new model of computer is that they've taken the screen size basically to the full length of the chassis. So the, the model's not getting bigger, but the screen yeah, so the actual to... footprint of the device isn't larger. The screen has just been made larger by slimming down the bezels, essentially. Yeah. Um, and they've updated it with a new keyboard. I have heard some people complain about the MacBook before's um, keys. I've had horrible bit... issues. Yeah, horrible issues. And just from a user standpoint, a lot of people didn't like the fact that they spread out the buttons and they made them just ergonomically the keyboard was not very nice to use in my opinion especially if you're using it as something you do a lot of word processing on yeah um besides that there's a dedicated touch id button i don't think that was very important to much people i don't see the touch id bar being that much of a slam dunk for the macbook pro line um but again i as i said in you know our christmas buyer's guide plug 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 watch that episode if you haven't already (laughs) Um, the new MacBooks still suffer from the same problems and the same benefits that the old ones that like do. They're powerful machines. They're beautiful looking machines. I think they're very durable, but they're very expensive machines. They're not in terms of, you know, the specs inside them. They're not top of the line. You are paying a very big premium for what you're getting. And I think even more annoying for people now is, you almost have to buy the $100 adapter as well. Oh, yes, you know, yes. Lot, so they've gotten rid of a lot this. of the ports that the bigger models used to have. Um, yeah, so there's I mean, no HDMI, no USB. Nothing. I think it's nothing just, on the, just four, um, four USB-C um, yeah. cable um, ports, um, and that's yeah. it. Um, and this device starts at $3,799 for the base model, which... That's pretty stock standard for what the 15 inches and 16 inches cost now because they all start, I'm pretty sure, with 16 inches. In, the, in, the, of in the Apple range. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, I, I should say it, that. I mean, you can get. You can get way probably cheaper. two laptops on, uh, off, off similar spec in the, in the Windows world, I would say, for that price. Would, yeah, especially if you go to. Especially if you don't go down the gaming laptop. Yes, um, like the high end gaming laptop route. You could definitely, you know, if you go for like a cheaper, like Dell's got the Inspiron range, just that cheaper ranges with, with really good specs, but just cheaper build quality. Um, But, you know, 
there, there were two good things um, or three good things out of this, I think. Um, one is that Apple sort of confessed, hey, we, we messed up. They tried for about five years to use their old um, old keyboard, well, now old keyboard technology, um, and people hated it. They, they had to offer, you know, programs where you could just send the keyboard, send the whole laptop in to get your keyboard replaced because keyboards were literally breaking. Um, yeah. So I think it's good that, you know, Apple confessed, hey, we messed up. We're just going back to an older, older technology. I mean, if it ain't broke, don't try and fix it, Apple. Yeah. Um, but then on the other side, I think they've gone for a thicker device um, is what I'm hearing this year, um, which to me signals a very good thing because this pursuit of the thinnest device it doesn't always make sense um, and hasn't always yeah. made sense. You know, I think past like the iPhone five people stopped to stop complaining about the phones needing to be thinner. Um, yeah. Even the because Motorola razor that we talked about before was such a thin phone. You just, there's a limit to how thin you need it to be. Exactly. And I think because, you know, as I think you're alluding to the thinness comes with a lot of drawbacks in itself that, it makes the machine less, you know, less sturdy and stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel, mm-hmm. especially with phones that the thinner the phone gets, you know, the more it has the propensity to like bend in your pocket. Like, because if you keep it and you wear in your pocket and you wear tight pants or, you know, if you go out and you're in outdoors when you do stuff, there's a good chance that your phone will not be able to hold up and it'll get a slight bend in it, which Definitely. can cause problems. And that's happened to previous iPhones of mine. And in terms of laptops, yeah, I, even though I feel like MacBook Pros are very well-built machines, I don't know what the metal casing is that they use on them, but it's been pretty sturdy for me. But yeah, any thinner, and I think it'd be the structural integrity of the machine would be compromised to a certain level. Well, they've been struggling with thermal issues in the past anyway. Um, yep. So going moving to a thicker solution is supposedly um, they've been able to get, I think, a 35% increase in cooling. Um, yeah. And the big thing is they've maxed it out with a 100-watt-hour battery now. A 100-watt-hour battery is the biggest battery that you can put in um, according to the, um, forget what they're called in the US, but the aviation authorities. Um, so most, you know, it's accepted that up to 100-watt-hour batteries are allowed on planes. Um, so they've maxed it out. Um, yeah. That means that, you know, again, they've gone for a thicker device with better cooling and better battery life. That's a win-win. That's not something that you hear about often. Um, most brands, most business, most companies release things that are thinner than ever before um, yeah. with maybe bigger batteries and maybe, maybe longer battery life. But those are very sort of arg- arguable. Um, and especially on, in, in, in devices like a MacBook that, is just as much about the aesthetics as it as it is about the performance. Um, you don't see brands or companies moving in a direction where it's arguably less good looking. Um, I am hoping that it's it signals a, a shift again, where you know maybe next year Samsung's new phones are a little bit thicker, but you know much larger batteries or um, you know can can. I'm sure you're right. I'm, I'm sure you're right. I I think they understand that. Once you get to a certain level of product design, once you get to a certain level of, you know, computing power in your devices, it really becomes about what unique product offerings you can give me as a consumer. I mean, Mm. I can get, I don't really, 
I don't look at someone's phone. I'm like, wow, that's just so thin. Like that, that's the thinnest phone I've ever seen in my life. I need to buy this right now. And you don't look at laptops the same way either. You look at, again, I think for me personally, battery life is probably a top three product attribute of a laptop because at the end of the day, I bought a laptop so it can be portable. Yes. So it's not, I don't have to plug it into a wall. And, and if you can get its maximum power for a longer period of time due to better cooling, yeah. again, I'm sure you'll put your hand up for that versus, you know, buying something with a lot of potential that, that you can use for five minutes, but then it starts overheating and, and slowing down. So, but we'll move Absolutely. on, move on. Um, next last two items, Disney plus um, launching today. If you're listening to the podcast, so 19th of November launching in Australia, um, the other launches haven't gone so smoothly. I just wanted to mention this because we've been sort of talking about the Disney plus Netflix sort of, um, well, upcoming, upcoming battle, the way I see it. Um, mm. So just a little, little thing that um, I thought, you know, we, we'd throw in there. The streaming yeah. wars are, you know, well and truly, truly on the way. Um, and, then, and that's what they are. Like, I know it might seem a bit redundant because it seems like we talk about Disney Plus and Netflix, you know, every episode, but this is going to be like a monumental change in terms of like the new media landscape. And I think it's important that we sort of keep you guys aware of it because it's definitely going to shift how you consume your TV shows moving and, forward. And, and so. then as a business as well, how you, how you advertise and what you advertise about. It's yes, you know, we haven't been talking about TV advertising for a long time because most people don't have that sort of budget. But now you're talking about potentially with sort of streaming becoming bigger, a shift away from even YouTube advertising um, yeah. maybe, or, or changing how you reference, you know, memes and, and things like that, because suddenly the Disney catalog is easily accessible for people in Australia, because as far as I can tell, we can't really, well, we haven't been able to access it that easily on demand in, through a streaming service until now. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole allure of a lot of Disney's products is that they, chuck a lot of their old movies and their intellectual properties in the vault mm. which means that they can't be bought digitally yes you know for a certain period of time so there's that um, artificial scarcity that they give their products to make them more appealing to consumers but i think maybe an underrated at attribute of why this can affect small businesses is what you allude to there where i feel as a business, you need to come off as relatable. You need to come off as some someone who exists in the pop culture zeitgeist that people, you know, that your consumers exist in. And that means you understand where they consume their content and how they are consuming it. You know, if you were targeting 65-year-olds, you would need to speak to them and advertise on platforms that, you know, they connect with, right? Whereas mm. moving forward now, I think we're going to see a whole generation of kids who fall in love with Disney properties again um, in the same way that maybe our parents did when these original animated movies were coming out or when you and I did when they really had that golden period of, you know, Aladdin, Lion yeah. King, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. These are all shared things that, you know, we understand. And, and I'll give you an example, right? You know, the old Lion King comes out when we're young. Well, mm. when I'm young and you're probably a little bit older and Woolies is able to, you know, leverage people's love of Lion King and their excitement for the new one by selling the Mushies, those little, uh, you know, toys that they give mm -hmm. out with their products and stuff. And as dumb as an idea that as that is, understanding 
you know, how much value that intellectual property has to people and being able to, you know, co-brand like that has done, you know, wonders for woolly sales and has helped them out of sort of a, a bit of a sales spiral that they've been experiencing as Coles has dominated them in that um, supermarket duopoly they've, they've been having. But I say all that to say that it, it is important to understand where people are watching stuff, what they're watching, because it does offer you opportunities to, as Jermaine said, even make a meme on your socials that references the, the new show on Disney plus that people are watching or That's if you it. are a, yeah, you know, if you are a blog site, understanding that hey disney plus is now the most used streaming service in the world yeah and, and yeah. i think, well, it, I think they signed up 10 million users apparently on launch day so that's uh to give you an idea netflix has i think 60 million users um mm. let me double check that for you but um yeah so you know they've made they've made a pretty decent here we go just bear with me let's have a quick look at how many subscribers netflix has yeah, so about 60 million, I believe. Oh, no, 160 million. What is it? Well, apparently, yeah, 158 million. Here we go. Um, so um, out of which 60 million are in the US. So uh, Disney's sort of made a pretty solid dent on their, on their opening day. So keep an eye out for that, even if it is just so that you're, you're relevant um, to your customers and what how they're consuming media but finishing things off uh, google reveals project nightingale is what they're calling it after they've been accused of secretly gathering personal health records and it was millions of people um in across 21 different states in the u.s um whose whose personal health data was collected by google weirdly or surprisingly this has actually been a common open practice uh, for, for a while. Um, I'm not saying that makes it okay or that makes it better, but um, apparently, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been happening for a while and Google hasn't sort of, it's not an accident. It's not a mistake. Um, Up to 150 Google employees may have had access to this data and it's, you know, everything from lab results and doctor diagnoses to hospital records, um, complete health histories, patient names, date of birth, everything. Um, yeah. I mean, it's horrible, right? Because this isn't even a problem of personal accountability that we always talk about where you need to be cognizant of what information you put out there because it can be used by, you know, the platforms that you choose to give it to. This is just a situation where these healthcare providers have gone to Google and, you know, Google affiliates for cloud-based solutions, basically for, you know, keeping medical records and having them available to people. Cause that's a big problem in the medical industry. And it's why if you go down to the Canberra hospital, that even if you go to different sections of the same hospital, they'll ask you to give yes. physical, uh, physical, you know, medical forms and they'll mm. ask you to restate your symptoms and stuff because they just don't have very efficient cloud-based decentralized systems well, the, the problem with that is, exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you would want, you know, when was the last time you heard that um, your physical forms that you signed got hacked? Probably yep. never. Um, never. But, and, and that's the problem. But So I can see both sides of the argument. You know, one side, I'm sure, is batting, batting for, on, on Google's sort of end saying, hey, there's, there's, there's no one doing this. We need to sort of make it easier. Um, mm. But on the flip side, um, 
it's still not okay, I don't think. But they're going to come. They, we're going to need a solution for this very soon. We need to be able to digitally store this information very soon. So um, unless there's anything else to add, Hayden, I think we can wrap up well, on that yeah. sort of sad note. Yeah, I mean, not to be all doom and gloom, but again, information and personal information is something you need to be very careful with. And in situations where you don't have to give it out, you know, and you don't have to trust it with people who might be in bed with, you know, slimy corporations, (laughs) try, try not to try to understand the value of your personal information. But I feel bad for the people whose information got compromised here because it was legit. They, all they wanted was healthcare. They went to a healthcare provider. They worked with Google, probably signed some documents that gave Google a bit too too much autonomy and too much rights over, you know, yeah, this the data, data and stuff. And it's just sad. And another, I think, reason to, even though Google is one of the, you know, most ubiquitous com- uh, companies in the tech space, it's something we all use and we all, I think, trust to a certain degree. Just don't. You know, don't set it and forget it. Don't just think Google has your best interest at heart all the time. Understand that they have a lot of interest to misuse your information. And yeah, be cognizant I mean, that. it's in their interest. Yeah, if there's a financial interest or a business interest there, they're probably going to pick that over your personal interest. So keep that in mind. But on that <laughs> fantastic note, um, we're going to continue using Google Chrome and I'm going to continue using a Google powered Android phone. Um, so, you know, you've got to sort of, uh, what can you do? Eh? Take the, yeah. Take we'll the bad. The good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks for that. Hayden. Thanks for another, another good episode. Um, if you have any thoughts, any comments, uh, please let us know. If you love this episode, please feel free to favorite, like it, or whatever uh, platform you're listening to this on or app you're listening to this on. Um, and as always, we'll catch you next week, Future Tribe. See you later, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Future Tribe podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. It goes a long way to helping us. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, email us at hello at f-u-t-u-r-e-t-r-i dot b-e. If you haven't already, become a part of the tribe on Facebook. Go to f-u-t-u-r-e-t-r-i dot b-e slash f-b and invite your friends. We're just getting started and we would love to see you there. That's it from us. I hope this episode has empowered you to keep working on bettering your future. It's a pleasure to have you as part of the tribe. See you next time.